Remember, Jesus has ascended to the Father. Um, He's left his disciples with this promise of the Holy Spirit. And sure enough, the day of Pentecost has come. And this crowd is now filled with the Spirit. They're speaking in tongues, sharing the good news. But remember, not everyone's buying in. There there were some in this crowd who were convinced that the, the people were filled with new wine. So Peter stands up. And in one sermon to defend the faith, 3,000 people are saved. The New Testament church is born. That's where Matt left us off last week with athletes in action. Baptisms abound. And we're going to pick up right where he left off. Chapter 2, verses 41 through 47. Let's now hear God's word as we think about this infant church that begins to grow. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, the day began uh, much like any other day. In fact, it ended with this perfect sunset. The waters were calm. You could see for miles. 126 crew members were making this shift change on the drilling vessel we know as the deep water horizon miles off the Gulf Coast. And you'll remember, no one had any idea that there was a disaster brewing below their feet. As the sky faded to night, this storm of methane gas began to erupt beneath them. First, the light flickered. Then two strong vibrations hit, and then finally an explosion. The inferno was so consuming to survive, you had just under five minutes to abandon ship. In Jen and I's time down in Houston, I knew a number of men directly involved in that disaster. And of course, they and everyone else in the world wanted to know, how did this happen? How did so much go so wrong all at once? Well, the investigation was quite complex, and it took years, but in the end, you might say it really just boiled down to one thing, and that was that somehow the fundamentals of drilling had been ignored. Valves had gone unmaintained, pressure tests wrongly interpreted, gas alarms failed, and even the blowout preventer that should have stopped the explosion ceased from working because of all things, a dead battery. And I give you that example because in our passage this morning, we've been given this very basic blueprint of these fundamentals pointing us to what church life should be. This scripture is in every sense of the word, a back to basics kind of lesson. Like from the very beginning, this church was devoted to four key aspects of life together. Look again with me at verse 42. We'll have this up on the screens. And they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching, to the fellowship to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. 
Sinclair Ferguson once called these the four birthmarks of the church. They are not only descriptive in helping us understand what this early fellowship was like, but it also seems to me they were very prescriptive in helping us think critically about our own devotions still as God's people today. And here's what I want to explore with you this morning. I want to ask this question, what are we devoted to? What is it that marks us as the church today? So let's look at these four together. Number one, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Day by day, verse 46 tells us they attended the temple to hear the apostles' instruction in the way of Christ. Just picture that with me. Thousands of new believers, freshly baptized to hear God's word for the first time in their lives. Later in Acts, we learn that much of this took place in this porch called Solomon's Portico on the east side of the temple. And for years, remember, this was the place where Israel would gather for informal instruction in the faith. Um, rabbis with their students, this discourse and debate. In fact, look at this. Look at how Jesus stepped into this in John verse, uh, chapter 10, verse 23. It says, And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. So imagine now thousands of people, years later, packed in the same temple courts in the same spot, and the first act after their baptism is to sit now at the feet of the apostles, much as the apostles had sat at the feet of Christ, to hear the word proclaimed. Now, if that's the description, let's think about the prescription. You know, here we are thousands of years later doing the same thing, gathered up week after week to open the word of God and to consider what it is for our lives. But why? Why would God put us together like that? Let's just talk football for a minute. It is Super Bowl Sunday after all. Just imagine the church, or I'm sorry, imagine the chiefs, not the church, imagine the chiefs, all carrying the same playbook, right? And as they walk out onto the field, each one has their own play in mind. And they know their play well. They've memorized their play. They have internalized their play. They are committed to their play. But there's a problem. And that is that corporately, no one's talked about the play. There's no coaching staff. There's no signals thrown. In fact, everyone's quite literally on a different page of their own playbook. Now imagine, the, the ref blows the whistle, the center snaps the ball, what happens next? The running back may look really good, right? He may have the route of his career, but the quarterback never got the memo. He still has the ball. And the wide receiver, he's sprinting downfield for a Hail Mary for nothing. Meanwhile, the offensive line, they, they leave a hole wide open, no coordination, quarterback sack. And now Taylor Swift is crying. <laughs> See the problem? Even though they all knew the plays, even though they all had the same book, they failed to execute as a team. But this morning, we find this completely different picture. We're told day by day, they were attending the temple together. They were devoted to the teaching of the apostles. I think there's something to be said about a corporate gathering of God's people sitting under the proclamation of the same word. You know, you can certainly grow in the watching of a sermon online or a studying a Bible on your own in your own time, listening to a daily podcast, all worthy habits. But when we share the experience together, we get something powerful. 
There's a common goal discovered for our week. There is collective accountability. We get spurred on by the fact that those around us are spurred on too. And intuitively, we know this, right? You hear a message that moves you throughout your week. What's the first thing that you do with it? You have to share it with someone, right? We get in the car after church and we ask our spouse, well, what'd you think? Or you hear a great message online throughout your week and immediately you got to text it to someone. Later in the book of Philippians 2 verse 5, look at how the apostle Paul says it. He says to the church, have this same mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Be of one mind. This is foundational, right? You know, we come to this place week after week, and I think as we do, it's vital that we remember, you don't just come here for you. Um, You're here for the person next to you. You can look to your left and say, thanks for being here. Appreciate you. Now, Hebrews 10.25 says this, let us not give up meeting together as some have done, but let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Brian and I snuck off to Phoenix here a few weeks ago for regional meetings for a 6 a.m. flight, which is always a brilliant idea until the 3 a.m. alarm hits. We got there and the entire Belgrade High School joined us. Uh, Their choir was there and you did not know a group could be that chatty that early in the morning. We got on the flight and I sat down next to these two students and they're taking selfies and I'm thinking, here we go, Ryan, put your youth pastor hat on. Seconds into the flight, these two girls open their Bibles and they start journaling. And I thought, okay, God, I'm listening. Two days later, we get on the flight home. and Now there's a college student sitting across from me. He orders a drink with these two other girls. And I'm thinking, here we go. Let the party begin. And no joke, he opens up his Bible. And through the entire flight, he's in the word. So we get off the plane. Brian and I are walking to our last leg. And I told Brian, I said, this is getting weird. So we jump on the flight to Bozeman, the cabin lights are out, and this dad across the aisle turns his light on, and sure enough, he opens up his commentary to the book of 1 Samuel. And I thought, okay, this is too much. So I tapped him on the shoulder, I said, are you from Bozeman? And he said in the strangest accent, he said, no, I'm from Australia. We made small talk for a minute. I said, do you realize the company you're in? He kind of looked at me like I was crazy. I said, I've been on these flights all week long and everyone seemed to have their Bible open. Like if you could see what I see. See, and here's my point, right? Imagine the encouragement when we gather together with the word open and the playbook is before us and we're all on the same page. Yes, it's good to read your Bible. Study that thing all week long. But how much better when we open it together? We see one another in the same word. See, that's how we get the ball down the field. Which really brings me to my second point, and that is this early gathering of believers, they devoted themselves to something Luke called the fellowship. The fellowship. In Greek, the word is koinonia. Anyone heard that word before? Here's what it means, right? Koinonia, fellowship, it it means quite literally, to put it in our words, they did life together. They devoted themselves to sharing together in ways that really still today our world finds radically different. Again, just picture what this looks like. Thousands of people all gathered together. What's mine is yours and what's yours is mine. Where did that come from? Last night we took the girls to their first ever Bozeman light parade. I think it was the first ever lantern parade in town. 
Did you hear about this? It's actually quite the turnout. And we, we went to this thing expecting to sort of watch from the sidelines bundled up. But as we're making our way in, this woman out of nowhere approaches us. I believe her name was Marlo. And she and her friend Carmel, they gave these, the, our girls this beautiful lit up flower. I mean, gorgeous, massive thing. And the girls were thinking to themselves like, no, we can't take that. But then it got even stranger when Carmel told the girls, I need you to be in the parade for me. I want you to carry my flower. And of course, now we're thinking, no, we definitely can't do that. This is your art, right? She said, no, 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 I need you to do this. It'll bring me great joy. She said, I'm an introvert. I don't, I don't want to complete this part. And I thought, this feels kind of fraudulent, right? So we go with this woman, we get registered, and everyone's commenting on my girl's beautiful flower. And like, I'm saying out loud, no, we didn't make this flower. So the leaders, they find out what's going on. And they say, well, we happen to have a, an extra lit up globe with a butterfly. Why doesn't your other daughter carry that one too? And I'm like, what is going on right now? So we're marching in this parade with all these artists, hundreds of artists, lit up globes. And everyone is telling my girls how beautiful their artwork is. And I'm trying my best to go, yep, thanks, we didn't make that. I don't know why we're here. You're too kind. But halfway through as I'm looking at this scene, all these accolades and encouragements, it hit me. This is the picture. Like this is the idea of the body of Christ and what it should look like, right? Follow me. We did nothing on our own merit to be saved. You were dead in your sin. You were lost in your transgression. There is no light. There is no beauty. Forget the butterfly. And yet with Christ, we've been clothed in his splendor and righteousness that we could have never made for ourselves. Even though you didn't earn it, you didn't make it, you can't buy it. Jesus said, here, come on, take my light, go share it. They had everything in common, distributing their proceeds to any and all who had need. How is that? Because what you've been given, your salvation, you could have never earned. You know, I think the absolute best picture for what this looks like, this kind of fellowship, can be found in our triune God, right? We say God is three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And to get nerdy, here's the idea, hang with me. The Father indwells the Son, the Son indwells the Spirit, the Spirit indwells the Father. Don't let me lose you. This is profound. Even though the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father, they are three in one. And their communion is so unified and reciprocal that their mission is inseparable. The father says to the son, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. The son exists to glorify the father. The spirit exists to bring people to the son. You know, I love how Kevin DeYoung once put it. He said, you cannot see God without seeing all three persons at the same time, all unified on the same mission. But get this, here's the part that gets me going. You and I were made in the image of God. We were meant for that same kind of community with him and with one another. So it would make perfect sense that these early followers of the way, they were constantly together and had all things in common. This is a stark picture. Acts tells us they were selling their possessions and distributing the proceeds to any who had need. Now at first read, especially in the rest, right? This, this sounds like a socialist manifesto. But hear me, it's not that at all. Just consider the context. 3,000 people now defected from the Jewish faith. What do you think happened to them? In the city of Jerusalem. They're cut off. 
right? This is the same city where they crucified Jesus. You can imagine the church was likely isolated misfits, economically destitute, outcast. So what do you do in a moment like that? Like the gospel must drive, the kingdom must go on. They shared with all for the benefit of the same mission. And it's not that everyone sold everything. We know that because they were still meeting in each other's homes. Later, we learned of Barnabas who sold just one of his fields. But the idea is this. No one is left behind. I love how Tim Mackey once pointed out how time and time again, you find the same kind of reality in the scriptures. You know, God's people are gathered and there's not enough. And yet somehow by the Lord's hand, scarcity becomes an abundance. See, it seems to me that's what God wants to do with his church, right? In our humanness, we have this sinful desire to self-preserve. We think what's mine is mine. But really, if we're made in the image of God, saved by the grace of Christ, what we're really meant to do is be self-giving. When you have the light you've been given, how do you not go and share that? The salvation that you've never been granted on your own, on your own merits, how could you not go and share that with others? I'm not suggesting we sell the farm this morning. And I love all y'all, but I'm not also suggesting that we form a commune. But I think we should ask, how are you and I devoted to this fellowship, to the glory of God? Do you see your time and your tithe and your life as something to be shared among the flock or do you see it as your own? We were given an announcement at Legacy this morning and Joanne, one of our members of the church, she asked the church, she said, are you volunteering to your full capacity? I thought that's a good way to look at it. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the koinonia, the fellowship. Three, they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. What, what is it about church and food? You know, we just did an entire study on this, right? At the table. From the earliest of age, there, there's something in us that knows faith and food go together. In fact, I was thinking about it. If you played your cards right, you could have started and had breakfast this morning at Legacy, came here for the, for the uh, new members class and had lunch. And by the time you got home, you could have brought all your leftovers and made your Super Bowl meal. No, but to break bread in Palestine was about as intimate of a sign of friendship as there was. Before your guests, you would literally break bread and give thanks to God for this meal before you. That's why Luke calls it breaking bread. This was the same picture as Jesus at the Last Supper, right? This was the idea. So it would make perfect sense that the earliest Christian fellowship was eating together. This is something they were devoted to. It was fundamental to their life and to their community. You know, we might not be able to make more time in our day, but let me ask you, can we make better use of the time we've been given? Three meals a day, seven days a week, 52 weeks a year. If I did my math right, that's 1,092 hours where we could be eating a meal together. You know, one of the tragedies of our day is that families seldom eat meals together anymore. We are too busy. We're too distracted and yet food is meant to slow us down. You know, we want it fast, but it was meant to slow things to a place where we would just enjoy each other in company. How do we reclaim that time? You know, one of the prayers of the elders this year has been to see more people connected outside of worship. We're trying to create as many avenues for you to do that. And I think meals are a fantastic start. Maybe hosting isn't your thing, and that's okay. We've got First Wednesday Fellowship. You can come to that. Or you can stay at the brunch at Legacy. 
Uh, once a month, we have lunch, brunch there. Go to lunch with someone you don't know after church. You can do that right now. Look at this verse 46. Look at their pattern. And they day by day attended the temple and broke bread in their homes. They day by day attended the temple and broke bread in their homes. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread. Fourth, they devoted themselves then to prayer. You know, prayer has become a hot-button issue in our culture. We, we read regularly of, of coaches and school districts being sued, right, for the simple act of kneeling after a sporting event. Now, I remember as a youth pastor, I was told I couldn't lead prayer at the pole. I was actually asked to leave the school premises because it would put the school in jeopardy, separation of church and state. So how is it then that last year, DeMar Hamlin of the Buffalo Bills stands up after a routine tackle and suddenly collapses of a heart attack? Remember that? And every player on that field and spectator in the stands, speechless, what do they do? They start praying. No one filed a lawsuit. No one cried foul. No one stopped the people from kneeling. The words pray for Lamar went viral. Newscasters stopped to pray mid-sentence. See, we know prayer is powerful. A scene like that demanded some kind of human response, and yet everyone knew the only response that most humans could give was to pray. And I think as a church, we forget the power of that witness, what it looks like to the world around us when God's people pray together. Tertullian, who was born in AD 160, he once wrote in one of his memoirs, how the Roman government had sent these spies to investigate the Christians, right? They had seen this new sect as a threat to the emperor. When they got there, these spies, they were dumbfounded. They reported back, these Christians are odd. Like they love each other like no one else. They serve together. They're praying together. Their fellowship is unique. You know, we don't just pray as Christians. Uh, we pray together. And that's not because um, we, when we get more people to pray, that'll force God's hand, right? That's poor theology, no, we pray together because we believe when we do, the church as a whole realigns itself to God's will. I'll never forget the day in my chaplaincy that I watched an entire church show up for one of its dying members. The ICU was packed full. The elders spilled into the hallway and in the overflow room, the, the waiting room was overflowing with more church members they were all there for this young mom who was dying with cancer. And it was a heartbreaking scene, right? And yet there was something absolutely stunning and beautiful about that witness. This church so unified in faith that they had come to send this woman off in glory. I am not exaggerating when I tell you amazing grace filled the halls. And you know, by the end of watching that prayer, I had known nothing about this church, nothing about this fellowship. But I remember thinking, man, that's a church I want to be a part of. Jesus said to the Father, I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they might be one, even as we are one. What could be more unifying than watching the church on its knees praying together? 
See, the fundamentals were dialed in, right? They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were committed to the fellowship, breaking bread with glad and sincere hearts. They were on their knees constantly before the Lord. Those four things were the birthmarks of this church. And make no mistake, it was a church that was far from perfect. We're going to learn very soon, read on many blunders in this early church. But one thing was clear. They were devoted together. I think it's worth asking this morning, how about us? Will you pray with me? God, we thank you for the extravagant devotion that you have shown us in Jesus Christ. The love poured out on the cross, Lord, the gift that we have received that none of us deserved or could work for. God, we thank you for constituting your church, Lord, that we don't have to follow you alone or do this life isolated. But God, you've given us a different way. You have carved a path for communal life together. So Lord, we pray this morning, would you reorient our thoughts? Would you attune our hearts, Lord, back to the basics of following you? God, would you make us a people who look forward to and enjoy sitting under the teaching of your word? God, a people who are devoted to one another radically in the fellowship, such that those around us see us fill needs in ways that the world would never see coming and are drawn to you. God, would you reclaim the the breaking of bread? And Lord, as we break bread together this morning, we pray by your Holy Spirit, you would fill us, God, with with your encouragement and your grace. God, we thank you for this time where we can be praying together as your people. God, and we echo Jesus' prayer, would you make us one as the Father and the Son are one. Lord, thank you for this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.